Isaiah. How many of you are, are reading through Isaiah with us? Okay, so there, there, there's about half of you. That's good. Um, I am looking forward to that. And we are already on day eight, so that's amazing. If you want to join us or if you want to just do this for the rest of the December and into January, the reading plans are up there. And uh, I would encourage you to get uh, one, use one or two of these charts. I have this sitting by me every morning as I read through Isaiah and the reading for that day just to check where are we in this book. And uh, it's not the easiest book to read. It's one of the longest books in the Bible, but it is richly rewarding. But I say that having read it over my life numerous times. You just got to keep reading the Bible. And you will not always grasp everything all at once. So this is the Advent season. And so actually today is the first Sunday of Advent. So we're going to light the first Advent candle. And I always like to refer to that as the promise candle. Because Christmas, as we see in Isaiah, begins with the promises of God to send his Messiah. It begins with the prophets in the Old Testament. And since we aren't meeting each and every Sunday in December, we'll go ahead today and light the second candle, which I call the preparation candle. People who hold to God's promises are prepared for His coming. Okay? And at His coming, the vast majority of people were not prepared. And the people who were prepared knew the promises and trusted the one who made the promises. And so that's where we're at as far as our Advent. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and prepare our hearts because we got a lot to cover. And it's a great passage that we're going to look at this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. All right. Glad you are here. Glad you are here. And uh, if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do because it's the living... Word of God that is sharp and powerful, as we're going to see, it's what the servant uses to accomplish his mission. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13, concentrating on verses 1 through 8. This is the second second song of the suffering servant in Isaiah. I want to start off with this. You see there in your notes, you got uh, Tom Cruise there, Mission Impossible, and then you got President Bush in 2003 with a banner that says Mission Accomplished. And here's what I want you to start out thinking this morning, is that servants of the Lord can often relate more to Mission Impossible than we can to Mission Accomplished. You know, a lot of times we, we might feel like more like uh, uh, President Bush where we're saying, hey, mission accomplished, but not really. There's still a lot to do. Okay, he took a lot of flack for that. But I love the Mission Impossible movies. How many of you love those movies? I could watch those just back to back to back. They are so awesome. In fact, I found on YouTube you can, watch, you can get an update of all the Mission Impossible movies in like seven minutes. So if you have seven minutes to waste in your life, you ought to do that. Uh, And you know each one begins with this. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is impossible, right? That's basically what it is. And then it always ends with these wonderful reassuring words. As always, 
Should you or any of your team be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This tape, or now this disc, will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck. Okay, I mean, what, what an encouraging uh, way to be sent off on a mission. Hey, that, what a way to end. Hey, by the way, if you screw up or you're getting trouble, you're on your own, okay? I don't have your back, okay? And sometimes serving the Lord seems more like mission impossible than it does to be mission accomplished. Now, in the first servant song, we saw, that's in Isaiah 42, 1 through 13, we met the suffering, suffering servant. We were introduced to him. And we saw the focus in that song was the manner, the manner of his life and of his ministry. In fact, we saw five characteristics. It's really a general overview of who he was. But what stood out in Isaiah 42 was the manner of this servant. And it was gentle, not forceful. It was quiet not loud in raising a revolution or a riot in the streets. And above all, he was faithful. He was going to be faithful. But here in the second servant song, in 49, 1 through 13, the focus is on the mission of the servant. And so over that general overview that we saw last week, you can go to weareliferich.com download the lesson, listen to the lesson, get the notes. But today, we're focusing on the mission. So let's read at least through the first eight verses. So look with me in your Bibles, and let's look at verse 1. And let me just say this. In the first song, the Lord was speaking about his servant. Now, in this song and the next one, it's the servant himself beginning to fulfill his mission and his ministry. So it's the servant that's speaking to us in verse 1. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. So the sword, his words are like a sword, and that sword is in the hand of the Lord. He has also made me a select arrow, or a sharpened arrow, or a polished arrow. It's a chosen arrow, the best arrow, and he has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said... That sounds like mission impossible. (laughs) He says, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet, surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, in order that Israel might be gathered to him, For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. Here's what he says. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? Let me tell you, I'll do more than that. 
I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, the suffering servant, to the abhorred, to the one abhorred by the nation, abhorred, I'm saying that wrong, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also bow down. So somehow he's going to first be a servant, but then he's going to end up being the king. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you. And in a day of salvation I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people. To restore the land to make them inherit and inherit the desolate heritage. Heritages, I don't know, land they they deserve. Let's go to verse 8. Let's stop there. Yeah, I'm having a hard time pronouncing today. So, in fact, uh, Gwen, can you give me a bottle of water? So, here's, we'll, we'll stop there. And what are we seeing here? Well, first of all, you see some repeated themes. The idea of chosen, called. Light to the nations. I will make you a covenant of the people. Those are repeated things. We're also seeing an increasing suffering. In the first song, in the first uh, servant song, it was only hinted at. You know, he said, look, I won't be crushed. I won't be put out like a flame. Here he's saying, wow, I, I'm, I'm despised. I'm rejected. I'm, 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 I'm ridiculed. Okay, the suffering is intensifying. And then finally, as I said before, we have the servant himself speaking to us. It was interesting, in the first song, it says the coastlands, those people farthest from Jerusalem, were, were anticipating him teaching him, uh, the servant teaching them. And here in this song, the first verse, he says, hey, listen up, I am now teaching you you people who are far away. Now, here's what we're going to learn from this song. So here's what I want you to get. The servant is testifying. He's telling us. And here's what he's telling us. How to accomplish the impossible for the Lord. You're going to learn, if you study this chapter, or this verse, these verses, you're going to learn how to accomplish the impossible for the Lord. In other words, how to respond when the mission seems too impossible to accomplish. The servant is telling us how to persevere from mission impossible to mission accomplished. And that's the calling of everyone. If you are, a, a, are, if you are born again and you know the Lord today, then you are his servant. And you have an impossible mission that he wants you to accomplish. So let me just ask you very quickly... Where does the Lord have you right now in this Advent season? As I said, life isn't a Hallmark movie. What temptation right now seems too great for you? What trial are you in right now that seems too hard for you? What testing has the Lord allowed that seems too much for you? Think about that for you. 
Do you feel discouraged? Do you feel defeated? Do you feel disrespected and rejected? Well, the suffering servant can relate because that's how he feels in accomplishing his mission. Do you ever wonder if God has forgotten you? Or worse, that he is determined to put more on your plate than you can handle. Well, no matter what season of Advent you're in right now, here's what the servant says. Listen to me. Pay attention to me. Because he's telling us how to persevere from mission impossible to mission accomplished. So let's begin and look at, behold, mission impossible. Mission seems impossible. So let's look at this. I want you to see uh, uh, a couple things. First of all, the nation of Israel failed to fulfill their mission as the servant of the Lord. You see, God chose Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he called Jacob Israel, and he said, you will become a nation, and that nation will be my servant. Israel had a twofold mission as a nation, and they failed at both of them. Here's the first part of the mission. Israel was to reveal the glory of the Holy One of Israel to the surrounding nations. They were to reveal the glory of the Holy One of Israel to the surrounding nations. You see, in the Old Testament, they were to be a kingdom of priests. The whole nation were to be priests and mediators between this holy God and the unholy people around them. And they were to bring the light of salvation to the unsaved nations around them. You see, they were God's elect people whom he had called by grace through faith with Abraham to be a chosen people, to be his servant his messenger, his witnesses, his mediators. And the way they were to do this was through their walk and their talk, with their lips and their life. They were to do it through their worship and the way that they witnessed to the people. They were to do it through faith and obedience. You see, the reason they had this privilege is because they got to see things that the rest of the nations didn't get to see. They saw the very glory of the Lord. And they got to hear things, God speaking to them, that the other nations didn't get to hear. So what they saw and what they heard of the glory of the one true God, they were to witness to the surrounding nations by their worship and their witness, by their life and their lips. And as a result, number two, their second uh, mission was the nations were to realize that the Holy One of Israel that they saw through Israel's walk and witness was the one true God and worthy to be worshipped. So they were to reveal the glory of God. The nations were to recognize that and recognize that there's one true God who is worthy of their worship. But unfaithful Israel failed to fulfill their mission as a servant of the Lord. And what did they do instead? They followed the unbelieving nations into the darkness, into the darkness of rejecting the Holy One. 
It's really cool in the book of Isaiah, if you're reading with us, there's all this light and darkness, light and darkness. And Randy was telling me, he said, like, man, you're just reading this. And then all of a sudden, boom, there is a child that is, I mean, all of a sudden, I said, yeah, because it's just darkness. And then all of a sudden, the light pops up. And then it goes dark again. And then all of a sudden, the light pops up. But the, the irony and the sadness of the mission of, of Israel to be the Lord's servant is that they failed at this. I've given you verses. In fact, right before chapter 49, in chapter 48, it says this. Look, you can turn back there. Chapter 48, 1. Here's how bad Israel failed. 48, verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel. Basically what he's saying is, you're not living up to your name anymore. And so if you notice in this book, he will call Israel Jacob most of the time. Why? Because they're living like old deceiver scheming Jacob instead of living like faithful Israel. So he says, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, you ought to be the rulers who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel. See, you pay him lip service, but not in truth nor in righteousness. You see, they have failed in their mission. And consequently, in that 8th century, when Isaiah is writing, the nations are just marching over the world, and they're defaming God's name. They're defying God's rule. They're destroying God's people and taking them into captivity. And they're defiling God's place. They're, they're, they're tearing, they are besieging Jerusalem and they want to desecrate it. God's people, God's place, God's presence. They're defying all of it. In fact, if you're reading with us in Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon says, I will exalt myself like the Most High. They're just, they're, they're doing... Genesis 3 all over again. I will be little gods. In fact, I'm a big God. And if you think I'm not a big God, I will crush you with my power and my might. And these are the people that Israel are making alliances with instead of aligning themselves with the one true God. Now, how can God bless Israel to be a blessing to the nations when they're unfaithful And the nations are still unbelieving. Well, here's the good news. Number two, the Holy One of Israel will commission his own ideal Israel. The Holy One of Israel will commission his own ideal Israel of his own choosing. So look with me at verse 3. This is the key. This is the key. Look at verse 3. He said to me, who? The suffering servant. We're really not sure. If you're Isaiah and you're in Isaiah's time listening to this prophecy, you're not sure who this is. You don't know the New Testament. You don't know that this is Jesus of Nazareth. But he says, he said to me, this mysterious suffering servant, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. So there's two Israels in this passage, and you've got to understand that. There is unfaithful Israel, the nation, and then there is ideal Israel, who is the person of the suffering servant. Now, let me make, let's look at his mission. 
Okay, so the focus of this is basically the mission summed up in verse 3. You're going to be my servant, the ideal Israel, and in you I will show my glory. Okay, so that, that's the key. And by the way, showing your glory, showing your glory is a key term. It's only used 13 times in the Old Testament. Nine of them are in, in Isaiah. And this one right here, out of the 13 times, nine times in Isaiah, this is the only time that an individual shows God's glory. Usually it's God showing his glory to others. This is the only time that someone quote, other than God, is showing his glory. So what are we getting? What's the idea here? This is God. This is God. Now, let's look at his mission. What is the mission of the ideal Israel, the mission of his servant? Number one, it calls for a prophetic messenger with a powerful message. The mission of the ideal Israel calls for a prophetic messenger with a powerful message. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He starts out being a prophet. Listen to me. Except, you know what? Listen to me. Let me throw this out to you. Nowhere nowhere in the Bible does a human prophet say, listen to me. They say, thus says the Lord. This is the only time, and, and, and even Isaiah, though he will use, listen to me, it's all, every other time he uses it, it's, the, it's God speaking. So again, another indicator, who is this? This is one unique individual who's going to be able to accomplish an impossible mission. Why? Because he is God. And yet, look at the verse. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. Whoa, mind blown. This is, this, this, this is a person, yet he's doing what only God can do. So here's the first thing I want you to see. The servant is predestined by the Lord to be a prophet for the Lord. He is predestined by the Lord, to be a prophet for the Lord. The Lord called me from the womb and from the body of my mother. He named me. And, of course, we as New Testament believers immediately think of the Christmas story where uh, uh, Jesus says, or God says to Mary, rather, uh, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. God is calling and naming. Jesus fulfills this, right, at his first advent. But notice that he's predestined by the Lord to be his servant. All these words called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. Again, down in verse 5, the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Verse 7, who has chosen you. And then back in the first song, my chosen one, I have called you. So this, this, is, this mission is going to call for someone who before time began, God has predetermined the mission will be accomplished. That's good news. Okay, he will not fail. And notice, he's predestined to be a prophet of some sort, but more than a prophet. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, and he has made me a select arrow. So that's the second thing I want you to see. The servant is not only predestined to be a prophet by the Lord, 
and for the Lord, but the servant has a powerful message from the Lord that is prepared by the Lord. So the messenger is predestined, but his message is powerful for it comes from the Lord and it's prepared by the Lord. So a couple things I want you to see in these verses. Both the messenger and his message are prepared by the Lord to be a powerful weapon, all right? He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And again, we know our Bible, so we think of Hebrews 5, where the Word word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. We think of the teaching of Jesus. When people would hear Him teach, they would say, I've never heard one speak with such authority, because His words would pierce their hearts. We think of Revelation 19 at the second advent of Christ where he comes as the conquering king and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. So the idea is this. His words are going to be powerful and they are going to be his weapon. This is how the servant is going to accomplish the mission. It's with the word of God. It's with the word of God. But notice... Not only are his words a sharp sword, but he himself is a select, as the New American Standard, a select arrow. So it's not just his message, but it's the messenger himself who is a weapon. And this is the beauty of what's happening here. Israel was to be the servant with their lips and their life. Here in the messenger, lip and life are one. He's going to speak with integrity. And the weapon of his warfare is that he is a man who speaks God's word and lives it perfectly. Okay, that's how he's going to do it. So when you kind of combine these with what we saw in the first song from last week, this is why he doesn't have to go in the streets. This is why he doesn't have to bring a rebellion. This is why he doesn't have to use force, because his words are his weapon. And they are mighty for bringing down powers and authorities. But his weapons are hidden. Did you see that? The sword is hidden in the hand of the Lord, and the arrow... Him as an arrow is in the quiver of the Lord. So there's an idea of protection here. His words are powerful, and yet he is protected. And I think there's two things with this idea of concealment. First of all, he's going to be a mighty warrior, but he's going to look like a gentle servant. That's one. Second, swords and arrows can be used to defeat enemies or to deliver friends and i think the concealment is the servant is going to come and he's not going to look like a mighty warrior and his words are going to first bring deliverance but later that same person is going to speak judgment okay so there's mystery mystery surrounding it so the impossible mission calls for a prophetic messenger with a powerful message second thing i want you to see is this mission, the impossible mission, requires restoring Israel to reach the nations. It requires restoring Israel to reach the nations. 
Now, as I read through verses 1 through 8, the vast majority of this is about one thing. If you just take the words on the page for what they are, it's about restoring Israel. But the freakish thing is, Israel is restoring Israel. So, the ideal servant is going to do what Israel couldn't do, and that is save Israel from itself. And in doing that, he's going to reach the nations. Okay? So, let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at this. Now, I've got seven things there, or eight. And they're all out of this passage, and there's no way I'm going to teach through all those. That's why you don't have any blanks to fill in. Those eight things, though, are all in that passage. And I know I think in alliterated words, but I don't even have to work hard at these R's because over more the, the, the vast majority of them are right there in the passage. And what are these eight things? Well, here's all I want to say. I just want to say a couple things. First of, all, first of all, the first thing to restore Israel, there must be repentance. The repentance of the nation is the hinge of all of God's promises being fulfilled. So it begins with repentance. And this can't be just individuals. It is the nation. In this context, there is no way to get around that the nation of Israel must repent. And they haven't yet done that. And we, the church, are not doing that for them. There's no way you can get that out of this passage. And so they must repent. And as they repent, they will be regathered. Not just a remnant like an unsaved King Cyrus did. Not just a unsaved refugees like the United Nations did in 1948. So that there is now a state of Israel, but they are not, they have not repented. And they haven't been regathered by the suffering servant. So that is waiting. Number three, they're going to be resurrected. Boy, this word literally means resurrection in verse six to raise up the tribes of Jacob, all of the tribes, not just a remnant. And it's the same word that Ezekiel uses in his famous, the dead bones that will rise. Remember dead bones rising in Ezekiel? Referring to the nation of Israel. And restoring the protected elect ones. That's in verse 6. This idea of restore is the same word for repent. But it's the protected ones, the preserved ones. The idea here is not every person that's ever been a born Jewish is going to be saved but only those that repent but they're going to be saved as a nation at some point when the suffering servant restores them number five redeeming sinful hearts the redeemer of Israel is mentioned in verse seven you see Judah came back to the land under King Cyrus, an unsaved king, but they, they came back with the same sinful hearts that they left with. Israel's estate in 1948, for which we rejoice God's grace to those people who do deserve 
a state within their land promised to them by their God. We rejoice in that, but they aren't redeemed. They aren't regenerated. In fact, the vast majority of Jewish people are, are, uh, are secular. And on that regathering note, what city has more Jewish people than any other city on the planet? New York City. The nation hasn't been regathered, folks. They await the suffering servant. Regathering, redeeming, restoring Israel is an impossible mission. Okay? And then receiving. Uh, and, and, and then look at number seven. This is key in verse eight. Repossessing and re- or reassigning the inheritance in the land to the families. This word of reassigning the land is only used in the plural two times here and in the book of Joshua where they actually parceled out the land. You, you can't escape the idea that the mission of the suffering servant is to regather not just Judah. You do know that the ten tribes have never been regathered. But all twelve tribes with redeemed hearts that have repented where they will be apportioned their land in the land that was promised to them and to Abraham their father. And all this will come about, number eight, by receiving the suffering servant as their new covenant. There it is in verse eight. Let's read it. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you, referring to the suffering servant. I will keep you, O suffering servant, and give you, O suffering servant, for a covenant of the people. And this was used in Isaiah 42. And it, it's pretty clear that the people there is the nation of Israel. Okay? He's going to be the new covenant that will fulfill all the promises. Now, look at what in verse, look at the end of verse 5. What does the suffering servant think about this mission? Look at the middle of verse 5. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord. He says to him, look, you're going to bring back Jacob to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. I am honored. And this is a great honor, the servant says. But as soon as he says that, the Lord says to him, I've got a greater honor for you. Look at verse 6. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones. Yeah, that's great. But I've got something bigger. I will also, not not instead of, but in addition to, I will also make you a light of the nations. Why? So that you, you, my salvation, will reach to the end of the world. So he's not only the new covenant, In verse 8, he is the Lord's salvation, which, of course, Jesus' name means what? Yahweh is salvation, which is what Isaiah's name means. Yahweh is salvation. So here's what he's saying. Your mission is twofold. It's a great honor. You will restore Israel. But I have a greater honor for you. You will be a savior and a light to the nations. Isn't that cool? 
So here's the second part of his mission, reaching the unbelieving nations with the light of his salvation. The servant is not only the redeemer of Israel, he is the light to the nations and the Lord's salvation to the ends of the earth. So no wonder in verse 1, the servant begins by saying, Hey, you far away people. Hey, you coastlands way, way out there. Listen to me because I'm your salvation. I'm your light. Now, not only does the mission call for a prophetic messenger with a powerful message, not only does it call for restoring Israel to reach the nations, but get this, the mission seems to be so impossible that it has failed. The mission seems so impossible that it has failed. And who thinks that? The suffering servant thinks that. Now, let me just stop right here. I know I'm not the only one that gets weary in well-doing for the Lord. And you know what? And if all you guys lie and say you don't, I know Jesus did. Look at what he says. Look at what he says. I love this. I mean, we don't see this aspect of Jesus very often. Look at what he says. Because, I mean, right now we're just talking, Woo, he's going to restore Israel. He's going to reach the nations. Woo, boy, I can't relate to that. We'll see if you can relate to this. Look at verses 3 and 4. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, the ideal Israel, in whom I will show my glory. And then just like us. But I said, I've toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. He goes, wow, that sounds really good. But right now, down here, it's not looking that good. It seems like it's mission impossible. You know, I'm, I, I may put the banner mission accomplished over my ministry, but it ain't feeling that way. And then you go over to verse 7. And look at what it says. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the abhorred one by the nation, to the servant of rulers. So let me give you real quickly. When you put those verses together, here's what it seems like. In terms of results, the servant fears his mission is unfruitful. He goes, look, man, I have worked all night. I have given it all I've got, and it looks like it was pointless. I have given it all my strength, and it seems like it was for no purpose whatsoever. It is unfruitful. Secondly, in terms of response, the servant is extremely unpopular, to say the least. He's despised. That means to be treated lightly, dismissed as and to undervalue someone, to treat them as, with, as unworthy of your time, despised. He was detested. He, he was so repugnant to people that they just rejected him outright. And he was degraded. Here was this chosen servant of God, sent to restore Israel, to reach the nations, and the very people he was sent to restore and to reach treated him as unworthy of their 
respect, much less their worship. Now, we know that this all came about when Jesus came the first time, right? What does John 1.11 say? say? He came to his own, that is Israel, and those who were his own did not what? Receive him. In fact, they said, crucify him. Disrespected, despised, detested, degraded. The crowds that he fed with miraculous bread fled the moment the handout ceased. His own disciples that he spent three and a half years with, for three and a half years, they mostly misunderstood him. And then at his time of greatest need, three of his closest disciples couldn't even stay awake one hour to pray with him. And at his false arrest, all 12 abandoned him, and one of those even betrayed him. And the one disciple, the one disciple that he said, upon this rock I will build my church, the rock of your preaching, the rock of your profession of faith in Christ, denied him three times. And he was crucified in the midst of rebels and murderers, spat upon, mocked his own rulers, mocked him and offered him up for execution. And the Gentile rulers mocked him and dismissed him as nothing more than another one of their slaves that they have conquered. So, what's it sound like? Mission impossible? Does, he, does, does the servant despair to the point of quitting? Does he see the lack of fruit, the lack of popularity, the lack of gratitude, the lack of respect and say, I'm throwing it all away? No, here's the good news. It's mission impossible is accomplished. The question is, how is it accomplished? And in this verse, in this chapter, we see that it is accomplished. Let me give you three ways that it's accomplished. Well, first of all, look. Look at verse 8. Let's, let's, let's read 8 through 13, the rest of the passage. Because mission impossible is accomplished. Thus says the Lord, verse 8, In a favorable time I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate places. Saying to those who are bound, Go forth to those who are in darkness, Show yourself, come out, be liberated, be free. Along the roads, they'll feed, and their pasture will be on all the bare heights. In other words, uh, we were just watching last night. Gwen and I were just watching a World War II documentary last night, where after World War II, the refugees were massive. And they just have these people, pictures of these people streaming. And your thoughts are twofold. Where do they get their food, and how do they go to the bathroom? Well, here's what he's saying. You're going to be regathered, and guess what? You're going to eat along the way. You're going to be taken care of along the way. And then he says, They will not hunger or thirst, neither will the scorching heat or sun strike them down, for he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to the springs of water. The suffering servant has become a shepherd king who is guiding his people. 
I will make all my mountains a road. He's going to eliminate obstacles and my highways will be raised up. Behold, there's that word, these shall come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth, all creation. It's going to be restored. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Mission impossible accomplished. Not in the George Bush kind of way, but in the suffering servant kind of way. Don't mean to dog on George today. Here's three ways it's accomplished. Number one, the Lord is trustworthy. The Lord is trustworthy. There's one way the impossible is accomplished, and it's because the Lord is trustworthy. Okay, here's what Isaiah is trying to do through this whole book. He's trying to remind his unfaithful people, I am trustworthy. Don't go to false gods. I am trustworthy. Don't trust in foreign kings. I am trustworthy. Don't make foreign foolish alliances with the world. I am trustworthy. And listen, it's not just Israel. It's every one of us that needs to be reminded Don't bail on the trustworthy God. Don't settle for worldly answers to your problems. Don't settle for worldly solutions. Don't make alliances with the devil and with the world and with your own flesh. Because the Lord is trustworthy. Why? Because the Lord is the Holy One of Israel. He alone, He's the Holy One means I'm unique. There's no one like me. And the one of Israel means the God who has revealed himself in the Bible to the people of Israel. Now, here's what I want you to see. All I did in these seven points, he alone is able. I just went back through this passage and I'm just listing for you the seven things that the Lord is trustworthy to do. You can trust him. He has a predetermined plan. You can trust him. He has prepared his servant. You can trust him. He can protect his people. You can trust him. His power is more than able. You can trust him. His promises and prophecies come to pass. Amen. Promise scandal. Prepared people. Trustworthy God. Okay? And he has made the provision that makes all this possible, the new covenant in his blood and body. But that means number two. So the, God, the Lord has shown himself to be trustworthy. But number two, the suffering servant trusted in that trustworthy one. The suffering servant trusted in the trustworthy one. So as you read these verses, there's all these fabulous things going on. But in the midst of it, you got this servant saying, Wow, things look unfruitful. I'm extremely unpopular doing your will, Lord, and I'm treated in an unworthy manner. They're despising me, detesting me, degrading me. Well, how's this servant going to succeed? He trusts the Lord. Look at verse 4. I love this verse 4. It's now my favorite verse in the Bible. 
at least for today. The Lord says, verse 3, here's this impossible mission. I'm going to show my glory through you. Verse 4, but I say it looks unfruitful, unpopular, and I'm treated as unworthy. Yet, yet, yet. What does your Bible say there? What's the the lead-in lead word? Is there a yet? Yet. You all have it? Circle that word. Yet, surely the justice due me is with the Lord. And my reward is with my God. The point is, it may look unfruitful, but God gets the last word. It may seem unprofitable, but God has my reward. Isn't that beautiful? Can you not be encouraged by that today? So he stays focused on the Lord in the midst of his despair and discouragement. He's not afraid to express his discouragement to God, but he says, I'm expressing it to you because my trust is in you. My hope is in you. They can say what they want. It's your judgment that matters. They can say, they can take everything from me. You have my reward. Because ultimately my reward is you, God. But then the second thing he does, and it's real subtle, it's verse 8. He prays. Notice what it says. The Lord says to his servant, in the favorable time, I answered you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I will keep you, that is, preserve and protect you, and I will give you for a covenant. But to be that covenant, he had to die. But I'll make you a covenant. You will live. So here's the point. The servant stayed focused, and he cried out to the Lord in prayer. Isn't that a beautiful thing? What season of Advent are you in? What season of Advent are you in? What trial seems too much? What temptation seems too great? What testing is too hard? Trust the trustworthy one. Stay focused on him. Cry out to him. And in the favorable time, in his predestined time, he will answer you and deliver you. Isn't that good? So what's that leave for us? Like Israel and the nations, we must turn back to trust the one who is trustworthy. This is a beautiful passage. Turn back. Repent. Forsake the world's wisdom. Forsake your own fleshly power. And turn back to trust the trustworthy one. Now, here's the beauty of it. We not only trust in the Lord, now we trust in the suffering servant. Because he indeed was successful. And though he died, he rose again. And, though, and as he rose again, he was able to be a co- the new covenant that is able to make you a heart that is obedient and trustworthy. You know what's sad, though? Look at verse 14. But Zion said... The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Right after this. But Zion said, 
The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And God in his grace answers to them. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? And the answer is, yes, sometimes that happens. And he says, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Isn't that beautiful? God has tats with your name on them. Not for show, not for... He's working on our behalf. And then look at these verses in Isaiah. This is what Randy said. They just pop out at you. Look at Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. He says, turn to me because I won't turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. (laughs) Philippians 2. Isaiah 30, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. Now, I've got some other verses there that I can't take you through. But they are verses from the New Testament to remind us that the promises to Israel have not yet been fulfilled and the church has not replaced Israel. There is still a hope for the nation of Israel. And when that nation repents at the second coming of Christ, when they see the one whom they have pierced, and they say, oh no, we made a huge mistake, and they repent and he restores them, and he regathers them, and he throws down the Antichrist and the nations at Armageddon, then ushers in the beautiful verses of 10 through 13, where the kingdom will come. And the church in Israel, and I don't know how all that works out. We are one people of God, yet there are distinctions within that people. And the kingdom will come. And all will be right. But in the meantime, the mission seems impossible. But the suffering servant has done the impossible. The mission can be accomplished, but you've got to trust the trustworthy one. And that means all of us, myself included, have things we need to repent of because we're trusting in the wrong things. Bank accounts strategies, jobs, family, whatever. The new elected official. And we need to trust the trustworthy one. Man, is, is this just not good stuff? And this is like, I'm, I'm like in the deep end of the pool, and I'm just dog paddling, and I barely got my head above water. But it's good. Amen? It's good stuff. Keep reading, folks. Keep reading and keep trusting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful word from you. It's a sharp sword. It's an arrow that will hit its target. Father, may we listen. May we turn from foolish gods and idols and alliances and trust in you, the trustworthy one, knowing that it's not our ability and it's not even our faith. It's our confidence in the suffering servant who is the shepherd king. 
who came the first time as a servant is coming again as a sovereign to rule the world. We rejoice with all creation and say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, Merry Christmas. We're still going. It's a good time of year. Amen.